Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 255, and it's called The Last Guru with Pete Rollins. And you know and you love Pete Rollins, and he's back on the Robcast. That's great to be back. I feel we've already had a Robcast before we turned this on. <laughs> you, me, and Kristen have been chatting away about everything. Pete and I, as you know, I've spent a number of years as friends, and we get going, and we chat, and we have had this ongoing conversation about uh, The Last Guru, mm-hmm. um, which I assume will be a book from you at some point. Hopefully. Doesn't that feel right? It feels it right. It's a good title. Right. It's a, a title without a book. We'll do this episode, and then we'll watch people say, Pete, you should do this book called The Last Guru. Um, a couple of things, real quickly. The introduction to Joy Tour rolls on next um, I will be in Nashville, Atlanta, and then I'm going to Texas because I love traveling internationally. And I will be in Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston. That joke never gets old. <laughs> and then I do these uh, two-day events that are about communicating, but at a larger level, they're about our lives and how we give shape and expression to what we're here to do. And I love doing them. I've been doing them in a new way which is so meaningful and significant uh, for me that I'm doing a bunch more. So dates just went up for January, February, and March. They're here in Los Angeles, these two-day events at the Improv. And, of course, it's more fun if you're there. All the info is at my site. And then one more thing. These lovely folks in Arizona asked Liz Gilbert and I to come do a retreat together. So next May... Liz Gilbert and I will be getting together in Arizona for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday retreat. And you know what goes down when Liz and I get together. Come on. So um, that website for that event, you can get to through my site or you can go celebrateyourlife.com and get all the info on Liz Gilbert and I uh, doing our thing in the desert next spring. So there's things that are cooking. But now we're here with our beloved friend Pete Rollins. The last guru. The last guru. <laughs> the first time you said it, I was like, ooh, because we have been having this ongoing discussion over, yeah. I don't know, a year about these ideas. It sounds like a, it sounds like a Tolkien book or something or a <laughs> Twilight book. I don't know. <laughs> so we'll start here and Pete will sort of walk you through the central idea. You know I'm going to have a bunch of riffs from the Bible about this, right? We can all just agree that's going to happen. Okay. And then we'll go from there. And this is actually the first time I've ever seen you with a piece of paper with notes. Oh, is that right? I've oh. never, in all of our years of doing things together, ever seen you. I mean, I've seen you talk for hours on end, yeah. but you actually have notes. Because yeah, it's because this, I think the subject's so important that I want to kind of make sure I hit on all the things I want to like, say. Po- you have like five points? I, I, yeah, it's just like a religious sermon here. I've got <laughs> one, two, three, four, five points. Okay, let's do this then. No. Let's walk through your five Points because I probably have heard various fragments of these in yes. our conversations, and I was like, "Oh, the Robcast folks would love this." So let's go. Okay, so I thought uh, I'd start off uh, light with a philosophical concept. How do you, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, we've talked before about this uh, this concept called Object A. Uh, Lacan calls it Objet Petit A. So it's, always, it's never translated in English. It's always the French, Objet Petit. Lacan is a legendary Freudian psychoanalyst, That's essentially. Right. French. Yes, French. Uh, very groundbreaking, a lot of his ideas. Yes, very Just difficult. background. Okay. Right, and so he had this Object A. Object A. And Object A 
is kind of like, it's like an algebraic phrase, the A, we don't know what it is, right? It's different for everybody. But it's the object that you think will fix everything. It's the object that destabilizes your life. That person who comes into your life and you go like, I have to be with them, or I have to be in that job, or I have to live in this place. It's when something enters your world that you go, oh my goodness, I would be willing to set fire to my entire existence. I'd be willing to destroy my relationships, my health, everything in order to get this. And uh, he calls this object A. And he, uh, Slavio Šizek, this uh, Slovenian philosopher, has this great analogy of how, of what object A is. He says, uh, at the time of Darwin, right, Darwin had a Christian friend, and uh, he was talking to his friend, and he said, listen, you know, you think the earth is 6,000 years old, but what do you make of these fossils, right? There are all these fossils. And the friend said, well, God made the world look old. Right? <laughs> when God created the world, he made it right, look ancient, right? Um, and like a tree appeared with rings yes. that it had been around for 77 years yep. on the day that it appeared. Exactly. Like that sort of thing. So it's genius, absolutely genius. It's like, yeah, all of those rings that say this tree is like thousands of years old. No, it's just made two days ago, right? <laughs> uh, just like in a movie, I suppose, they make a car look old. Never was old, but they make it look old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Shizek says, this is a perfect way of understanding what object A is. So basically when you go into the world, you're pursuing things and maybe you, you want that job and it's gonna just fix everything. Then when you get it, what you're left with is a fossil and the fossil points to something that you wanted but didn't get called object A, but it's a fossil that doesn't point to anything. Object A doesn't exist. All that exists are the failures to get it. All that exists are your frenetic pursuit for it. And when you finally get the thing that you want, you're left with a fossil. And the fossil makes you think, oh my goodness, that, that almost got it. It's a remembrance of the longing. Oh yeah, it's a remembrance of an object that never existed. It's like, oh, it's like you always never quite get it. You always, you're always just left with a fossil, but never with the thing. Because object A doesn't kind of exist. Um, object A, another way of thinking about it is that it's like an incarnation. As human beings, I would want to argue that we're structurally prone to thinking there's some absolute that's going to fix us. And in the incarnation is the object A. It's whenever you see that thing that will fix you in the world, whether it's millions of dollars, whether it's a relationship, a religion, whatever it is, that that's the incarnation of object A. But every time you get it, you're kind of left a little bit dissatisfied. Um, and the problem is, of course, lots of people out there promise that they can give us object A. Yep. They promise that we can stabilize our existence, find happiness and peace. Um, and we're, we're prone to believing these people. So we're very prone to having gurus. And, uh, you know, that's a very normal thing. But, and, and, but whatever guru is out there, um, eventually, if they're promising object A, it's going to let you down. So, for example, if monogamy was your thing that would fix everything, you're probably going to go to polyamory because that's the next thing that might fix everything. That's a common thing in LA. Or if you were a hippie, you might become a conservative Christian. Or if you're a conservative Christian, you might become a hippie. You might get into, <laughs> you know, you, it's all... There's always another place to go to. Yeah. Because this place has failed to deliver. Yeah. If you think about it, like, spatially. Yeah. You're in this space and somebody is telling you, come over to this space. Yeah. 
and it'll be way better. Oh, way better. I, I've met I've met monks who fantasize about and religious people who fantasize about a hedonistic lifestyle, going out, having sex with people, drugs, parties. And then I've met people who are real hedonists and have sex, drugs, parties, and they fantasize about being monks. It's amazing. <laughs> I would talk to somebody the other day. He had exactly this. He's this really cool guy. He was a musician, uh, DJ very attractive he had a fashion label he's a good guy and he, but it didn't satisfy him and so he was always fantasizing about being a catholic priest and i'm like i was saying, i was saying to him that's hilarious because there's lots of catholic priests who are looking at your you. life and they yeah, want yeah, yeah. <laughs> to do that and uh, you know we were talking about that but but it's like it's it's, it's this idea that the suppose the grass is always greener on the other side it's like this thing that you you want to get so you know that's that's something that we all kind of get caught up in. And I guess this is what I call religious conversion. Religious conversion is when you move from one kind of thing that gives the answer to another thing. So we're always religiously converting. Christianity to Islam, to Jewish to Judaism, to you know, humanism. We're, we're always converting. Uh, and the trick for me is how do we not have a religious conversion but get a conversion from religion. In other words, is it possible to break out of this entire structure, this entire way of being, and live in a different kind of way? Can I say one thing about the religious conversion? Yep. A number of those religious conversions are away from religion to the idea that there's nothing here. Yeah. Pure reason. I'm just going to go with my head. I'm going to go with science. I'm going to go with data. Yep. which I always always has religious undertones to oh, it. Yeah. yeah. The person who is fiercely reductionistic, there's nothing going on in this world. Yeah. It's just science and cells and synapses um, is actually a very profound religious yes. conversion. And here, here's the funny thing as well. You could be right, and it still has a religious dimension. So an example that Khan uses is, if you're pathologically jealous that your partner's having an affair... And it turns out you're right that, that he or she is having an affair. You're still pathologically jealous. You just also happen to be right. So <laughs> you can actually have the right beliefs about something. But the way, if, but if you need to be right, if you hold on to them how in a particular held. way, how it's held yes. is very, very key. And on the other side, you can actually have beliefs that are wrong, but you don't hold them in a pathological way. You don't hold them in a religious way. You just happen to believe that the, say, the earth revolves around the sun because you haven't been exposed to the data. So the funny thing is, it's like even when someone seems like they're right about something, that doesn't mean that that belief is still not pathological in nature. It still doesn't have their self-interest fundamentally embedded in it. So I see this a lot with um, even people on YouTube who have these very rational YouTube channels and they're very good and I think they're they're mostly correct in their opinion but they are so frantically always arguing their position that it feels like they need it to be right it's, it's not just that I think they happen to be right it's that they need to be right uh, I mean same as with a hypochondriac who thinks they've got heart disease and then it turns out they do have heart disease they're still a hypochondriac <laughs> they're just a hypochondriac who's right you got it right <laughs> yeah yeah. So whatever it is, it, it's weird to say that don't necessarily judge the correctness of your belief. Um, think about how you interact with it. Yes. Think about, yeah. How what you it produces in you at some level, what yeah. it does to you. Yeah. And the, the thing is that 
although things let us down and we move from one thing to another, this eventually will destroy us unless, and this is what I mean by the last guru, is if you meet someone who's a guru, and we all look for people to authority figures. It's natural from when you're a kid, you look to your parents as authority figures. So there's a thing called transference. And transference is where I think someone else has the answer. Uh, it's called the subject supposed to know. I think that this other person has the secret to how I should live. Um, the trick is, if you have someone who very gradually exposes that they don't have the secret, so it's not that they let you down, oh, this system doesn't work, is that that person takes on the transference, they let you believe that they're wonderful, they let you assume all of that, and then very gradually over time, they disillusion you. They show you that actually they don't have that secret, that they're just as divided as you. Then what happens is you become more comfortable with your own uh, conflicts and deadlocks and antagonisms mm. because you've symbolically identified with them. I'm like, I want to be like Rob Bell. Rob Bell's great. He's got the answers, right? <laughs> you know, whenever I'm at your house, whenever I'm talking about you as Rob, I always talk about Rob Bell. I talk about Rob. You, it was you, Kristen, who showed this. You said like, it's like, it's funny, whenever you're talking about the symbolic Rob, I, I just use the surname. It's, it's Rob Bell because that's, that's your symbolic thing. <laughs> and, and as Rob Bell, people are like, you've got the answer. And then very gradually, over time, you can go, no, it's like, it's the priesthood of all believers. I am your priest that is gradually going to show you that we're all priests. Yes. And that's, that's what I think, like, the, the problem is so many religious people, gurus, don't do that. They want you to do the transference, and then they, they promise the wholeness and the completeness. They don't realize that their job is to begin to crack that open. Yes, yeah. they, they, okay, keep going, because oh, yeah. you're just getting going. Okay, well, so that's, that's, I think, what this notion of the priesthood of all believers is, is that I, I transfer onto you, say, as Rob Bell, um, I think you're going to have the answer, but instead of saying, yes, I do, and, you know, if you just buy this course, and if you get the next book, and you do this, and you do that, now you'll get it, and you keep me strung along, uh, if you instead go okay, I'm going to allow you to think that. I'm going to allow you to symbolically identify with me, and then I am going to die in front of you, right? This is for me called, um, it's called a redoubled kenosis, because remember I said that the object A is the absolute, and it becomes incarnated in some person or some belief system. The sec so that's kenosis in theology, as you know, it's like the emptying of emptying the absolute of self, right. into, into the world. But then the, the crucifixion, is a, a second kenosis, because that's when, it's not when the absolute dies, it's when Christ cries out in the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is when you realize that the absolute is, is also cracked from within. The absolute also has antagonism within it. And so that's kind of structurally what a guru, a good guru should do is, it's, it's this moment when very gradually I realize that you have the same problems as me. You have to pull your trousers on one leg at a time. You get frustrated and you have doubts, you have all of that, but you have made peace with that. And then I'm able to make peace with that dimension in myself. And so that's the move from religious conversion to conversion from religion, where you convert from the need for conversion. It's a salvation from the need for salvation. <laughs> 
So uh, you know, I've talked about the last guru as the 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 teacher, the authority figure, the mentor who can really ha can actually help you. Yes. Who lets you down the right way? It's like it's like lets you down the right way. Yeah. The, the, a guru will only do one of two things: they'll let you down in the wrong way, or they'll let you down in the right way. And what I'm talking about is the guru who will let you down in the right way. Say more about that. Yeah. So because Elko, that is okay. Yeah, I love it. Oh, thank you. Well, so if if a guru tries to hold on to I have the answer it'll work for a while it'll be great and you'll have a ball and maybe you'll get a new community maybe you'll try new things and of course there's always fun with trying new things but over time you'll be left with a fossil you'll be left with oh this didn't work as well as I thought it would I still have my anxieties I still have my obsessive compulsions I still have my neuroses um, I still suffer from you know whatever uh, and then you then you go and look for someone else. So then you're prone to the next person who says, no, but I have the answer, right? Yeah. And so you do that 10 times. That's the guru letting you down in the wrong way because it's not going to work. Letting you down in the right way is whenever they, they show their own impotence very gradually in front of you. They show their own dividedness. So, so much so that you realize that that the very pursuit of this guru who has the answer is actually the problem. That's not the solution to the problem. That's the problem. It's the very pursuit of salvation is what we need saved from. So the person who helps you is the person who you come to them for help and the gift they give you is to free you from this idea that you ever needed them yep. in the first place. But the paradox is you need people Exactly. To tell you you don't need them. Yes. So the structural framework remains the same. It's just doing something very different. Exactly. And that's why in psychoanalysis, transference is required, is you have to almost unconsciously think that the analyst is some, not just an expert, but almost like a, a god, right, who really understands the meaning of your dreams, who understands the meaning of your unconscious and all of that. And, and it, because of that assumption... You begin to do the work. You begin to talk and reflect. And then eventually you can come to realize that, oh, I've been doing all of the work myself. This is me that's been doing all of the work. And yes. then and then the, the analyst can go, yeah, it's not me that's done this work. It's you that's done this work. You go, oh. And then you can break up with the analyst because which is the last act of analysis really is, is, is getting rid of the guru. Yeah. Uh, which is why a great therapist, you come to the therapist with the question, the therapist essentially says, well, what do you think? Yeah. What is your deepest intuition telling you? Yeah. And just keeps asking you questions about what's present in you. Yeah. And essentially is teaching you to trust that you actually have all of these capacities within you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the issue that most of us have is when we say go to a guru or go to an analyst, we have this desire to get rid of the conflicts that are in our life. Yeah. So a symptom in, in a nutshell is a conflict between maybe two desires that you have. Maybe you want to shout at your boss, but you also don't want to get fired. And so you, you clench your jaw at night, right? The symptom is showing that you want to speak, but also you want to keep your mouth shut, right? So symptoms are kind of like embodied contradictions, uh, in conflicts that are within us. And we want to resolve that. Uh, I talked to a friend the other day who he's just gone through a divorce. 
and he's trying to figure out what his wife, his ex-wife, wants from him. He's like, one day she's nice to me, the next day she's not. You know, sometimes she's like really accommodating, sometimes she's, she won't answer a call. And she's going like, I just want to know, what is she thinking? And as we talked, I was saying, well, what if she doesn't know what she's thinking? What if she has conflictual feelings about you and you're trying to figure out what is what does she really think when really she thinks a multitude of things and it comes out in different ways. Uh, this is what Hegel meant when he said the mysteries of the Egyptians are mysteries to the Egyptians as well. It's going like, you know, we, we're trying to get, to, you know, what, what, if yeah. I've met the Egyptians, they would yeah. know. It's like, what if the, the mysteries of the Egyptians are also mysteries for them? Is that that we all want to get rid of the contradictions in ourselves and we all fantasize that other people don't have contradictions. Some people, they're the gurus. Um, in analysis, what happens is you don't, you don't get rid of the contradictions. You deepen them. Actually, every contradiction gets deeper and deeper. You realize that you want to shout at your boss and you don't. But then you realize maybe you want to shout at your partner, but you don't. And then maybe it comes down to you felt you wanted to have a conflict with your parents, but you didn't. And, then, and you keep kind of unpeeling this. And the, the weird thing is we think we're going to get to a point where oh, we get rid of the contradiction. But then we hit the fundamental contradiction. Uh, we, are, we are between life and death. We are being and nothingness. We are, because we are who we are, and we're also who we're not, because we all think about who we'll be, you know. We're, we are a contradiction. And we come to the deepest contradiction, and we come to make peace with that. And that, again, is the journey, I think, of the, the last guru, is to avoid, what I actually think is, is the core of fascism, actually. And I don't mean that, I mean, that's always, it's a very strong sense, but just, you can see it in an extreme way in, in, in fascism, is, uh, Hitler constantly in Mein Kampf talks about organic holes. There is an organic hole. There is a way of oneness. Uh, uh, people are the blood of the system. And there's, a, there's something that's coming in and disturbing that. And for him, it was a Jewish community. And if we get rid of the opposition, we get rid of that group, we'll get back to the organic hole. This is such a primal way for us to think that you find it all around us is that there is an opposition. It's basically, in philosophy, it's called reducing contradiction to opposition. Instead of realizing there's an inherent contradiction in us, we reduce it and say, no, it's not a contradiction. If I could only get rid of my partner, if I only I could get rid of those conservatives, if only I could get rid of those liberals. Which is, which is the political discourse right now. Yeah. If we just didn't have these people, yes, then this thing would run smoothly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you see, it, this is called, I, I, uh, a guy called Todd McGowan calls it the right-wing deviation of the left. It's whenever even people on the left give themselves over to this, this fantasy, what ends up happening is they create new scapegoats, new enemies, um, and also really kind of like a naive understanding of the world. Like if only we uh, kind of were... Well, I don't know how political we want to get, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, how political yeah. do you want to get? We love it. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, go ahead. Well, let's go, back to, let's go back to the personal. Um, because the personal is the political. Yeah. You yeah. have right now this time of great destabilization. Yeah. All these things are shifting. Yeah. For many, many people, the way that their tribe taught them to navigate the world isn't working anymore. Yeah. So... Uh, contradictions left and right yeah 
And so we see so many people, uh, many people grew up with a particular kind of fundamentalism, whether it was religious, economic, political, et cetera, mm -hmm. academic. Um, and that isn't working like it used to. And so there's this swing. Oftentimes the reaction is just to swap out the fundamentalisms. Yeah. Like yeah. that structure didn't work. Yeah. I'm lonely. Yeah. Because I'm without reference points or somebody giving me the rules. Yeah. So it makes people incredibly vulnerable to just swapping out the fundamentalism yeah. and doing something, which is why oftentimes that word progressive now, mm -hmm. oftentimes is just as mean and nasty and narrow yeah. as the, the thing oh, it's yeah. coming from. Yeah. Um, you have fundamentalists all across the spectrum. Yeah. That's exactly right. Like we haven't, whenever you're moving from one thing to the other, in, in, the, in the words of Hegel, basically, you haven't reconciled yourself to contradiction. You're still reducing it to opposition and you're still trying to then cut out, like, like a cancer, like something that you can cut out of the body that won't work. So for example, within progressivism is a good example, is often you get this idea that our system doesn't work because there are bad actors, right? So there are certain bad actors, maybe they're CEOs, they're hedge funders. Mitch McConnell. Funds, Mitch McConnell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's some <laughs> bad actors, right? Yeah, yeah. And you get rid of the bad actors and the system would work well. But the alternative is to go, what if actually there's something inherently contradictory about the system that's being disavowed? And actually, um, well, think about it like, an, again, and fascism is a good example. The, the fascist community thinks that if only they got rid of the Jewish community, they would get back to organic wholeness, uh, society would run well, connection mm -hmm. to the earth, uh, get rid of technology, corporations, that kind of thing, right? But the, uh, the truth is, the, the thing that holds the fascist community together is the Jewish community. They are held together by their hatred of something. And the if, opposition is the glue. Exactly. If you get rid of the thing that you hate, it actually, you realize that that was the only thing that was holding you together, keeping the system going. It's like the hypochondriac. It's not, they, they, they hate their disease, but they don't really, they love their disease. And this is, in politics, it's interesting. So many of us love our enemy, but we love our enemy like a hypochondriac loves their disease. We love to hate. Like we need, we libidinally, as long as there's an enemy out there, we don't have to look at the deeper contradictions. Uh, in yeah, our yeah, yeah. Okay, so an individual has... They have some dream, some desire, something mm -hmm. that it's like they're here to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then they know if they pursue that, mm -hmm. there could be resistance, there could be cost. Um, their friends might not understand. Yeah. Like if they actually are, like let's say, true to their heart and follow this curiosity deep within them, mm -hmm. um, there will be all of this... There could be all sorts of conflict, danger. It's taking them into the unknown. Who knows where this yeah. might lead? So they go to the guide. They go to somebody for guidance mm -hmm. because of this contradiction within them of, yeah. I think I'm here to do this, or I need to try this, or something's calling me in this direction. But I have this terror and this fear and this list of rings that could go wrong. They go to this person with this contradiction um, because they want this person to help them fix it, solve yeah. it, resolve it. Yeah. And... The great gift the person gives them is, yeah, me yeah. too. I get that. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. And, it, and it's weirdly going, it's like you, you go there to kind of 
go out of the contradiction, but what they do is they actually push you into it. You go deeper and deeper into it. the contradiction. That's why even, you know, that they, in the popular vision of the analyst who you're saying like, oh, I had a dream about something and they go, well, well what's your relationship like with your mother, right? But there's some truth to the, the popular view, which is the idea that the very contradictions that are happening right now in your life actually open up to express wider contradictions that you're only dimly aware of, and then those are going to widen out even deeper. Um, there's uh, Paul Tillich said something which I really like, which he said that, well, I'm paraphrasing, but um, he said that psychoanalysts, they start with the personal contradictions. They talk about the problems that are in your history, in your life, the traumas that have happened to you. Uh, but those connect with the universal trauma that is life and how we live right. in the world. Uh, the priest, and by the priest I'm using it in a non-confessional way, but the, the priest is the one who starts with the, the contradiction that is life. They start with the big, but that connects and touches on your personal contradictions. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the analyst and the priest kind of meet. They're coming from... So whenever someone comes to uh, the work of a philosopher, for example, they're probably talking about more general contradictions in life and difficulties and thoughts, but it does connect with their personal history. And vice versa, when you go to the analyst, they, they widen your contradictions to see that actually, you've, you've, at, at a fundamental level, you're questioning what does it mean to be. We don't know that. Um, something Heidegger said we were talking about earlier, he said that a human being is a person who questions what it means to be a being. So it's basically at, a, at its core, he says, a, a human being is a person, who is, is, is that which questions what it means to be. So, and he thinks we do this all the time. It's not a philosophical question. It's, it's every time you go, uh, what, should I take this job or not? Should I phone this person or not? What's the right thing to do? Every time you ask a question like that, you're asking yourself, what does it mean to be? What, what kind of being should I be? You know, so there's a so there's like um, what matters, what endures, yeah. why am I here? Exactly. What is the point of any of this? All yeah. gets worked out, and these endless little decisions we're making every day. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not that we then come to the answer. It almost is like, no, that's what we are. <laughs> we are that. And um, like a a dog doesn't really kind of like you know have this these existential questions. What does it mean to be a dog? We don't say that. Oh, that's a, that's a very in dogish dog. <laughs> we talk about being very inhuman, human, right? It's right. a weird. You know, right, in, right. what does it mean to be inhuman? Because in one sense you go, well, to be human, it's just like to be a dog's to be a dog, to be a cat's to be a cat, to be a human's <laughs> to be a human. But we all know that inherently, humans are the creature that doesn't know what it is to be human. Um, and and that's that's like a contradiction that not only do we not resolve. It's actually the contradiction that perhaps we need to reconcile ourselves with and even enjoy. Absolutely. Okay, so um, when we and I first started talking about the last guru, this idea of the gift the guru gives you mm. is to free you from the need of a guru. Yep, yep. You need, you need somebody to tell you you don't need them, that yep. you actually have these capacities within yourself. Yep. You come with the contradiction because you're trying to find somebody who will fix or resolve the contradiction, and the greatest gift they give you is to show you their own, and yeah, this is how it works, and yeah. then take you deeper into yours. Yeah. Um, this strikes me 
in the Exodus story, these slaves at the beginning of the Bible get rescued from, get, get liberated from slavery. They're brought out into the wilderness, and then they're, the whole Sinai encounter, which was always read as a universal story, yeah. the giving of the Ten Commandments, was always the divine saying to these former slaves who are wandering in the wilderness, you'll be a kingdom of priests, which is you won't need anybody over you telling you what to do because you'll all have everything you need yep. to manage the contradictions, to figure it out, yep. essentially. Um, but it's almost like it's a hot, they can't do it. The story is, give us a king, give us a king, basically who will tell us what to do. Yep. Um, so in the whole story, the divine voice is the one going, you'll, be, you'll all be priests. Mm-hmm. And there's this great line where Moses is like, frustrated with these people because they can't step into the fullness of their being. Uh, it's like they can't handle the largeness of this uh, call, essentially, to be fully human. Yeah. Uh, and there's this one line where Moses is like, man, I wish they'd all prophesy, which is a very ancient way of saying, I don't, I don't want to be the, I'm tired of being the leader here. I wish they'd all be leaders, yeah. essentially, which is the guru going... Um, I'm trying to show them that they can all do this. Yeah. 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 I had a conversation with a well-known religious leader recently, a lovely guy, but he said, listen, Pete, what you don't understand is most people don't really want to think for themselves. So I want to help people live well. I've got a way of thinking about the world. And, you know, basically that, that basically people are sheep. Right. And I go like, yes, I think we are. I know that tendency in myself. I want someone to think on my behalf or whatever. But this is the idea that 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 people in a in the right environment can break free of that and become free thinkers and think for themselves. And I find this guy's view so pessimistic. Yes. It's yes. Like, yeah, so it's like, yeah, it's hard work, but the hard work is to get people from that place of like I need the guru to the point where they don't need a guru. He's, um, he has settled on a certain, he's the guru, yeah. and I'll just do it for you. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to where the real juice and mojo of life is, is always when you discover, hey, I can do this. Yeah. And there's, it's always yeah. where it gets more fun. Yeah. There's, I have this within me. Yeah. I can figure this out. Absolutely. Like, there's a whole trajectory in the biblical text, which I love structurally, which is, so I, as a broken individual, identify with God because God in religious terms is the one without lack. God lacks the lack. So in philosophy, God is pure substance. So I- God as, lacks the lack. Lacks the lack, yeah. So, <clears throat> so I have a lack, I'm a su- subject. I identify with God who is pure substance, who lacks the lack. Then in the Christian tradition, which I find fascinating is first step is the- um, incarnation of first kenosis where the absolute becomes human and then the redoubled kenosis is the crucifixion where i where god says my god my god where have you why have you forsaken me so god experiences the lack of god now i've symbolically identified with god uh, because i want to get rid of my lack and now god is experiencing the 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 lack the contradiction and now I can accept my contradiction and lack, and then it moves into the third stage, the epoch of the Holy Ghost, which is the community who <laughs> live together doing acts of love, and there where, where that happens, God is there, right? So you have this beautiful move that I think 
captures these ideas that's right through the, the biblical text. So what do you say now um, in this moment when for so many, what does the path look like forward? What does the, the uncertainty for so many people, whether it's financial, political, like all across, what am I supposed to do with my life? Um, and people do look for help and guidance. Mm-hmm. How do you tell people what to be looking for that can actually help that won't bind you into another trap? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so much of it is, because unfortunately talking about this stuff doesn't help a lot. I'm hoping that some people are listening to this and going, oh, that makes me feel a little bit better. And I'm kind of hoping that's the case. But the bad <laughs> news is <laughs> now you've got to push into it. He wants you to feel better, by the way. Yeah, I do. There you go. I don't say it very often. <laughs> Contrary but it's funny to because what belief. you're saying is I want you to feel better about the inherent contradictions yeah. of this whole thing we're doing here. I want you to feel better about not feeling better. I want you to feel better about the fact that your life is a bit of a mess. And you don't have to stay within it. But... But basically, it's almost like you said this to me years ago. You heard me speak at Greenbelt, and you gave me this analogy that I love. You said, Pete, what you said in that talk basically is the world's like a big vending machine. And people have put different products in the vending machine that will fix you. And you're saying that instead of trying to get the right product out of the vending machine, we need, we need to take a hammer to the machine itself. And I was like, oh, that was very good. Oh, that's good. That's good. I know. And you said that. I was well like, done, Rob o- Bell. Over breakfast. <laughs> over breakfast. I was going like, wow. There, and I didn't call you Rob at that point. That was Rob Bell right there. That was a Rob <laughs> Bell moment. Um, and I was like, that beautifully <laughs> captured what I was trying to do, which is to say that the, whole, the structure that we're often in is how do I escape my contradictions? How do I, yes. how do I blame? How do I scapegoat? Isn't there the problem? If only I get rid of that. If only I get that, then everything will be fine you're caught up in a frenetic pursuit that will always ultimately uh, damage you. So now maybe you start to think about, okay, maybe I don't try to escape the contradiction. Maybe contradiction is part of life, but maybe I just have to deepen it and widen it, come to somehow accept it. And the weird thing is, when you come to accept the contradiction, it, you, it, it's robbed of its sting. This is actually what grace is. I think grace is a really radical concept, um, and it's not a religious concept necessarily. Grace is where you realize, I don't have to do anything. But in the realization of not having to do anything, everything changes. So it's like grace is the opposite of self-help, because self-help is always going to, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, then everything's going to be great. Um, like bad self-help. Bad self-help gives you, you're going to get from A to B, I'll show you how to do it. You're going to arrive at a point yeah. And when you arrive there, then everything will be good. Yeah. And then you have to write another book and another book. Like Scientology has, you know, it's even more OT stages. You know, you can't, because you, you have to keep people going on this journey because yeah. you never get there. Grace is this weird thing that's so counterintuitive that says, stop. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. But stopping actually enables change to happen. Yes. It, it robs the contradiction of its thing. And in fact, it makes it something good. Um, I, so basically, I want a religion. This is kind of it's a religionless religion. It's a religion against religion. It's a it's a it's a non-membership religion. I just made a non-membership coin. I'm very pleased with, <laughs> which is a, it's a little coin for people who have been into my work. And the idea is that it has all the symbolism on it, the, all about what we're talking about. But it's called a non-membership coin. 
partly because if ever one of their friends says, are you a member of this pyrotheology thing? They can bring out the coin that proves they're not. I go like, I'm not a member. I've got the non-membership coin, right? But that, that for me is, is a symbol, symbolic of what I'm trying to say, which is you joining a group that helps you realize that groups aren't what's going to fix you. It's a, joining a group that helps you be an individual. This mm. is what Kierkegaard was always about. He was always about how to become an individual. Um, but he, he hated groups. <laughs> I actually think it's important to, to have types of groups or types of rituals that actually help you become an individual. So ultimately, it's a non-membership community. It's a community that means you don't want to... Be, it's almost like... I loved it in Icon. This is a community I was part of. Uh, people would ask me, well, you know how many people would you say are core? The core people in Icon. And I would say, well, there's about 20 people I'd say is co are core. And then I'd go, and like 10 of them never come. And like a few of them just sit at the back and drink beer. I'm going like, oh yeah, that's kind of interesting. Is that, that the ones who I considered who got it best were the ones who just didn't need it. <laughs> they, they got the secret. The secret is there is no secret. It's interesting. I, I do all these Q&As on tour. And I'm just thinking about the ones from last weekend. So it was three nights in a row of... Uh, you know, a, that's a lot of questions. Oh, yeah. And it strikes me how many of the questions, they're so wonderful and smart and heartfelt. The person is actually bringing a contradiction. Mm. I'm doing X, but I'm experiencing Y, and I'm wondering about Z. Mm -hmm. I realize now how many of us we're bringing, and I get the premise. Yeah. Come, Rob Bell, answer your questions. I get the premise, yeah. um, the setup, but the question, I realize now how many people's questions, my first thing out of my mouth is, yeah, mm. that can be difficult yeah. or frustrating. Or, yeah, that, yeah, that's a question. Oftentimes, yeah, that is the question, isn't it? Yeah. And what's interesting is they've just asked this question that comes from real uh, antagonism or sleepless nights or pain or frustration. And I will say, yeah, that is the question, isn't it? Yes. And I will notice a physiological, like I will notice their posture, their body. You can see it. Yeah. Like relax. There was a, a lovely woman in Indianapolis sitting with her husband in the second row, middle. And I can, uh, my response to her question about the contradictions was at some level, yeah, that is what it's like. Mm -hmm. You've named it well. Yes. And, and she did like a, oh, thank you. Yeah. And her husband had like a, oh. Um, but the gift was, you're doing fine. Yeah. You've actually named it quite well. Yes. Um, you clearly have everything you need to continue on this path. Yeah. You, re you know that, that your job there is not to resolve the issue, but to create a container that, al that almost makes that contradiction sacred. It's oh, I was just, yes. Yeah, go yes, ahead. Yes, yeah, yes. So. I was just going to say, there is something about the witnessing. Mm -hmm. uh, and more and more and more, I notice... Because I came from this tradition where you fix it, yep. you resolve it, and my personality type just keep, just put on a party, just mm -hmm. keep talking and dancing and 
hey, 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 um, combined with studied a bunch of this stuff for years, so I can give you seven paragraphs on this. Yeah. Um, and so, and I'm noticing how much the power of presence. Um, I'm just noticing more and more and more and more how our presence with one another, witnessing to the contradiction, mm-hmm. is the empowering gesture we give each other. Yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. That is. Uh, and I know. I know about that. Yeah. That is. That is a contradiction. Yeah. And and here's the thing, like, because some people might listen to this and they'll then go, oh wait. They get it and they like it, but also they might go, well, it's a bit airy-fairy, right? It's a bit kind of <laughs> like, you know, it's a bit woo-woo, right? And I want to make it not woo-woo for a second. So one is the pastoral dimension, which is where you in that space, you provide, like, like the answer, you just provide this space for saying, I hear, I acknowledge that, we stand with you in that space. That is a healing thing. So, but this is also... Uh, something we can see in science and in mathematics and in philosophies and th- that we can talk about because we, i was mentioning earlier about how the the point is not to get rid of the contradiction but it's to deepen it to listen to it to acknowledge it and to deepen it it's interesting that in the 19th and 20th centuries uh there have been these real developments in the sciences that that give give a certain uh credibility to this idea. So Hegel is in philosophy. We might come back to him. I don't know. He's my favorite. So, um, But you have, uh, for example, in mathematics, you have uh, this guy, Gödel, who he works out that if you try to create a mathematical system that explains reality, it falls into contradiction, right? So if you try to create a mathematical system that really mirrors reality, it falls into contradiction. Uh, but otherwise, you can create a mathematical system that doesn't try that, a much weaker system, and it's consistent. This is similar to what Immanuel Kant did in philosophy. Immanuel Kant said, if you use reason um, as much as you can, you end up in contradictions, uh, what's, what he called antinomies. You can argue that God exists or that God doesn't exist, and equally good reasoning can bring you to both. Or the universe has a beginning, it has no beginning. There is necessary existence, it's all contingent. All of these basically contradictions. So Kant and Gödel actually, both of them said, so we don't have access to the way the world really is. We can't really access that. Hegel comes along with Kant and he says something fascinating, absolutely brilliant. He says, Kant's right. Whenever you use reason really strongly, you come to contradictions. The only thing Kant didn't realize is that that doesn't mean you haven't had an insight into reality. That means you have. Yeah. And then what you have then, so with, with someone like um, uh, Albert Einstein, right? Albert Einstein discovers at the quantum level these contradictions. Yep. Just like Gödel, Albert Einstein says, well, we're not getting something, right? Einstein opens up this way of going, we're hitting contradictions, so... God doesn't play dice. Yeah, exactly. He literally was like, to his friends, Max Planck, etc., he was like, how you are telling me the universe actually functions, I refuse to accept. Exactly. So he opened up a door that he didn't walk through, but then Niles Bohr comes along. Yes. And Bohr says, again, no, you're right. The only thing you don't know is that God does play dice, (laughs) that there is this superpositioning, this, this undecidability in reality. 
And even Darwin discovered this in biology. Uh, Darwin discovered that there was a deadlock and antagonism in biological systems that creates complexity and difference. So in mathematics and in physics and in biology and in philosophy, in various ways, we discover that it's not that we lack an ability to see something. It's that actually we're penetrating into reality and there's something that is contradictory about, contradictory about reality itself. This, so this is the ultimate solution, is when you realize that I'm a contradiction and so is reality. So if I want to be in line with reality, I need to, I need to move with contradiction. Then everything changes. Everything changes. So you go to a guru to get rid of the contradiction, the yep. tension, the paradox, the ambiguity, the fact that we're endlessly figuring it out. Yep. And the guru who says to you, I'll do it, fails you. Yep. So then you got to go to the next guru, the next system, the next strong voice, the next authoritarian regime, whatever it is, because maybe they'll do it, because maybe they'll do it, because yeah. maybe they'll do it. The last guru, on the other hand... The, like the woman who sat in, in the Q&A, and she says that to you, because you're, you probably, to her, are an authority, a guru figure, <laughs> and you don't do that. You go, whew, yeah, that's tough, isn't it? This it's is the really gift tough. I'm going to give you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're going to go back through your history and see the moves that you made in regards to this contradiction and how when you made peace with it and stepped into it, wasn't that exciting? Yeah. Look at the life that was there. You yeah. actually did find peace because what she was sharing is this new path is where the life is and it has all this disturbing sort of contradiction, but it's also filled her with wonder and joy and peace and yeah, yeah of course yeah yeah you, you made peace with the lack of peace which brought at some level some sort of different kind of peace yeah so the last guru is the one who frees you from the incessant hunt for some resolving of the contradictions yeah. but simply sits with you in them and says actually there's a peace here behind the peace behind the peace yeah this is the move from the lack of the secret to the secret of the lack uh, on, on, yeah, a, and I, I did this with the coin um, where I it's written, uh, somebody gave me the idea. Funnily enough, I said it and didn't see it. I said, I want something that communicates the move from the lack of the secret to the secret of the lack. And then a couple of uh, my friends uh, who follow me and my work, and they said, you just put it in the circle. Because if it's in a circle around the, the, the coin, you can read it, the lack of the secret or the secret of the lack. I was like, oh, that's very clever. Very clever. Because yeah. when we enter the world, we feel that we're lacking the secret. And the Somebody guru... somewhere has the secret, the inside information. Yes. Somebody somewhere knows how it works. Yeah. And obviously our mass media culture where people can do these extraordinary sales jobs on how beautiful they are and successful they are, you're like, wow. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. I guess they do have something. Yeah. Here I see, I live in an apartment block in LA, and all the time I'm seeing uh, men and women doing their Instagrams, uh, like by the pool and stuff, carefully constructing the world. And you see, it's like, I can see it. Go like, you're not living like this, but for the, but you're carefully constructing the image of a non divided yeah, other. Right, right, or right. What's right. called a non castrated uh, other. Yes. An other who is. You, without castration, without lack. You're like, oh, yeah, we can create that image. Um, so that, that we, we feel, oh, we're lacking the secret. And that person on Instagram, they've, they've got it. But then the true guru, and this is a real 
active art and it's difficult art is to bring you to the the secret of the lack which is where you go oh actually there's contradictions that are at play in the world and the problem is not the contradiction the problem is disavowing it in theological terms this is interesting because the uh, sin the word sin used to be described as nothingness so uh, you think about saint augustine basically said it's kind of like the hole in your sock it's a lack that lets in water Right, so or a hole in your shoe. It's a nothingness. But then another philosopher, theologian came along, well, a lot later, but uh, a guy called Altizer. But Altizer said, well, no, nothingness isn't the problem. It's the fleeing from nothingness. Mm. It's the freeing from the lack. That's what creates all of the violence, all of the destructive power, scapegoating. It's our inability to embrace the lack. And so moving to the secret of the lack is, is basically going, okay, the problem's not the contradiction. The problem is fleeing from it, never addressing it, never going deeper with it, never flowing with it. Because you think about story, like a movie, every single story we ever tell that we consider a good story mm -hmm. begins with this person wants this thing, they can't get it, they're not up to it, there's something in the way. Mm -hmm. Like contradiction and conflict and lack are how we measure good stories. Yes. And, and the difference between Hollywood stories in general and art house stories in general. So you got indie movies and Hollywood mm -hmm. movies, and there's loads of exceptions because I'm much more of a Hollywood guy for good and bad reasons. <laughs> uh, which is mostly bad reasons. I love Steven Seagal. Give me a good Steven Seagal movie. Good Lord. <laughs> Pete, the surprises never stop That's coming. terrible. I, I did know. not see that one Is coming. that right? Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. But because the one fixes it at the end. Well, see, that's the issue, yeah. So often within Hollywood movies, they reduce the contradiction to opposition. So Remove the opposition. Kill the bad guy. Kill the bad guy. Put, him in put her in jail, whatever. Put him in jail, and then... It's fixed. Done. Fixed. Yes. And then indie movies generally more tend to reconciling yourself with the contradiction. So a good it's an indie incredibly movie. Broad generalization, but I like it. It is, and it's so wrong in many ways because, like, the things, and in beautiful <laughs> ways. Like, there's movies like Batman series was brilliant because in Batman, uh, it's Christopher Nolan, isn't that right? Live long enough to find oh, yeah. the hero becomes the villain, or I mean, you have this. Very, he never really fixes much of anything. Yeah, and he, yeah, he realizes that he's actually the problem. He's, yes. he's always thinking, if I kill the right body, but he's going like, no, but I create the bodies. And eventually he sets up an orphanage and he kind of moves away from being Batman. He realizes that, that you, you know, he, in other words, you can't fix, fix Gotham City by killing a couple of supervillains. It has to be, you know, a city that, you, you, you improve the education, you look after the orphans, you do that. Don't spend money on a big tank. Spend money on an after-schools program, right? That's <laughs> the idea. So, the, so the, and Fight yeah. Club's another example yeah. which doesn't resolve. So this is the best of Hollywood. I love it when Hollywood does it right. They give you a really good Hollywood movie, but they don't reduce contradiction to opposition. They keep the contradiction alive. And then, yeah, so that, that's, that's where uh, I think Hollywood is best. And yeah. that's, uh, okay, that, 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 that is huge for me. So many of our questions are trying to make my way in the world, be who I am, do the work I'm here to do. There's always some opposition. If I just had more money, if I had more funding, if I had more, uh, if this group of people got the mission, if, yeah. or uh, people with parents, if, the, if our kid just, whatever it is, there's always some fill in the blank, opposition, yeah. if we could just remove opposition. Yeah, yeah. 
and 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 it's and the weird thing is like it's no different because it's it's there's always an antagonism a deadlock yes but it's it's whether we whether we fall for the fantasy of opposition or whether we embrace what Hegel called absolute knowing. I mean, he called it absolute knowing. It's just hilarious because he basically said absolute that knowing. absolute knowing, which sounds like the most arrogant thing to ever say. And it, whenever some people read Hegel, they see him as basically saying, I figured it all out. Right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he kind of is saying that, but he's saying it in a very precise way. What he says is that, that when you come to absolute knowledge, you come to the knowledge that absolute knowledge isn't possible. That's what absolute knowledge is. Ah, absolute knowledge is where you actually fold in unknowing. So it's not unknowing from a lack of understanding. <laughs> it's an unknowing that comes from understanding. You know enough to yeah. know how much you don't know. Exactly. True wisdom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and Hegel said that I was absolute knowing because he said, there is no invention or discovery that will overturn it. Like that is, even if we meet aliens and all these super intelligent beings, the the insight that we come to, that in which life is contradiction, is the insight that that produces uh, positive results. And we still need to get it in politics. We haven't got there in politics. We haven't really got there in religion. We are kind of getting there in some sciences. But it's like it's like how do we as a society not scapegoat? And some people think Christianity is a religion that's all centered around breaking scapegoat mechanism. So it's interesting that that theory. Ah, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So how do we how do we move away from oppositional thinking and embrace this contradictory thinking? Uh, so uh, like with my kids, at any one moment, like this week, I could I could name and articulate for you what each kid challenges they're facing. Yeah. Oppositions. Yeah. If we could just remove those oppositions, then my kids would be happy. No, yeah. because you remove that, there'd be a new one. Yeah. So joining them in this lovely life we're living together yeah. is joining them in those contradictions, talking yeah. about them, asking what they think about this, what are you learning, them asking questions. Uh, it's not the, the elimination of the opposition. Yeah. It's the entering into the contradictions yeah. with them. You were a really good person, and this kid's giving you a hard time. Yeah. When you've been nice to them, like, yeah, the contradictions left and right. The actual joy of the parenting isn't removing all the opposition in the world so they can just glide. It's the participating in the contradictions with them. Yeah. And there's a and you make peace yeah. with that. Now you actually have a sort of peace. Yeah. Yeah, of course this will be a little bumpy. What else would it be? Exactly. There's the, the political name for this is one we all know, democracy. So yeah, that's it. That's the name like, for this in politics. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a couple yeah, of ways yeah. I could go with it, but I'll go with democracy first, because democracy is where once we got to the level of democracy, and we can, you know, there's various ways to organize democracy. You've got to the place where you're going. All of the contradictions within a state um, are brought together in a way that doesn't destroy the state, doesn't create oppositions that want to kill each other and fight against each other. And I think Winston Churchill was brilliant when he said democracy's terrible. It's just much better than all the other yes. <laughs> all the or, other possibilities. Or you think about how we've named this. Uh, traditionally, it was called the loyal opposition, and a system had to have, democracy had to have loyal opposition. Oh, yeah. You had to have other political parties to make the thing great. Because yeah. if you just had one monolithic party it would just be able to go unopposed and you wouldn't get the absolute best 
result. Yes. So the contradictions, ideally and historically, were what the thing needed to function optimally. Yeah. That's which, exactly. which is, a, to me, a, a more important truth than ever, because now it, the, the oppositions are not at all... I mean, it feels like they're blasted to pieces and they're not doing the job of oppositions. Yeah, and demo democracy it... can be, could be under threat for, from a number of reasons. One of the ways democracy can be under threat, which is the most subtle, there's a word for this, but it, let's call it purified uh, democracy, which is we let the people vote as long as they vote for the right thing. <laughs> so it's like, it's like if mm -hmm. it's happened in, in, uh, it happened in the UK, it's, I mean, Brexit's a good example of this actually, but that people, if, if the people don't vote correctly, well, let's, let's put it to another vote again. So you put it to a second vote to get the correct vote. The problem with democracy is it's a nightmare and sometimes it causes disasters, but it's even worse if you purify it. If you try to purify it and say, well, only educated people can vote or only people who have the right opinion can vote or only people who have the right X, Y, or Z can vote. You're trying, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to purify it so as to get rid of the contradiction. But what you're left with is something so much worse yes. <laughs> than the contradiction, yes. right? It's, 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 it's done for the right reasons. It's like, I want to purify democracy because the people voted wrongly, so let's do it again. But you're going like, that's the problem. With Once you reconcile with the, with the contradiction, you have to rule with it. And you think that's terrible. Yes, there's only one thing worse than it, and it's not doing that. You know, it's only, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, so. Oh, my word, Pete. I'm so looking forward to my last Guru book yeah. from you. Okay. Well, listen, man, you, you, maybe you're the one to write it. <laughs> I, I've stopped writing recently. I haven't written for like three or four years. I just oh. love speaking now. Can't you hear the masses out on the street shouting? Sorry. Like another Pete Rollins book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will. I'll take. I'll. I'll take that lie. I'll. Uh, yeah. Oh, we could just go on forever, but this you already got me going now in a hundred new directions. Oh uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. I love doing the Robcast, man. It's always fun. How uh, and what do you have going on that people could tune could into? You have some class now you're doing right online. Doing, doing some online course. I'm actually doing a course called the Tyranny of Oneness. Uh, that starts in uh, <laughs> a few months, um, and where I'm really going to like look at this idea of contradiction in a deep way. Um, and then my big thing, actually, if anyone's interested in exploring these ideas uh, in bars and with music and cabaret and art, uh, I do a festival uh, in May. So I'm starting to gear up for the for my Wake Festival in May. In in Belfast, Northern Ireland. This is your uh, hometown. Yeah. And it's how long? How many days? It's five days. And people come and you show them Belfast. Oh, yeah. There's like about 80 or 100 people come from all over the world. And, and then we you've have, curated uh, these days. Yeah. With, and it's with all this crazy stuff. I, we have, always have a lot of cabaret. and cre Like we, we want you to experience the, the, the contradictions of existence. So we have some <laughs> crazy absurdist comedians and musicians. And uh, it's, it's quite fun to watch. We actually had, I remember last year, we had this woman from Australia got up. And she was like this kind of very guru type person, but she was, she's from East Belfast and, uh, but she acted this like guru and she didn't tell anyone it was, uh, she was doing an act. She oh. just did it. And it was the most uncomfortable thing for about 15, 20 minutes. I watched thought, her. Like why'd Pete have her come? Yeah. And also it was just a little bit too much, but it wasn't too much that you were like, this is just too much, but it wasn't normal. It was like this really, really uncomfortable what is happening here? I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it was very fun to watch. So we should just tell all of you who are going to go to Wake, 
We're, next We'll spring. try and mess with you. Whatever is happening, it could be Pete punking you. Yeah, yes, that is, uh, that is very likely. <laughs> that is very likely. And where do people find you stuff? Uh, just at PeterRollins.com. You'll there we go. find me. There we go. Uh, I love it when you come over. Yeah. Are we going to lunch now? Oh, yeah, let's do it. Where okay. are we going? Robcast friends. <laughs> oh, my word. Grace and peace be with you now more than ever. <laughs>